Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 34 is where we're going to fix our attention on this morning. Would you please hear God's words as they are written in the fifth chapter of Mark? And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came out of the ruler, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. May the Lord add a blessing to the readers, hearers, and doers of his holy and errant and infallible word. Amen. This Mother's Day, um, you guys know I have been really concentrating this season on wrestling with suffering. And the reason I've been concentrating on it particularly is because we are in a suffering season. We are in a suffering season as a country with pandemics, you know, uh, uh, ravaging our families and our homes. We saw uh, just this past week that we tipped over the million, million person mark or the, uh, in terms of the amount of people that have died as a result in some shape, form, or fashion to the coronavirus. One million people in this country have died. And we know that not just have we experienced collective suffering in terms of what's happening in our world and what's happening in our country, but we are experiencing even in our church our own set of suffering and struggles and pain. And, and so you, for that reason, I have been concentrating a lot on the idea of suffering. And this morning, I, I want to do just that again, because I know some of you have been suffering Many women have been suffering and suffering whether it be financially or suffering relationally or suffering spiritually or suffering physically. And many of you at this point, you feel lost and you feel abandoned. Many of you may be watching, you feel lost and you are uh, abandoned. Many of you in this room the same way. Many of you may feel weary. Many of you may feel forgotten. The pain that, 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 that is in many of your bodies seems to always be present. The loneliness that is, that is in many of your hearts seems too frequent 
seems to always be there. The bills that are present seem to keep coming and, and they don't seem to have any end. In other words, the struggle is real and the struggle is present in many of your lives. And so what I want to do, I hope, I hope what we can do is we can look at another woman and we can find in this other woman some encouragement for our souls. There's three things here in this woman that I want us to see. I want us to pay attention to her profile. I want us to pay attention to her desperation. And I want, her, I want us to pay attention to Jesus' response to her. Her profile, her desperation, and Jesus' response to her. Now, before we go too quickly into the story about this woman, I think it's important to pick up in verses 21 through 24 where this story actually begins. That is with Jesus crossing again in a boat to the other side, great crowds begin to form and follow him. And as they are following him, there is a man by the name of Jairus who fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him and the crowds thronged around him. That's an important word that we're going to come back around to. But thronged around him, they go with him as well. What's actually really interesting to me about this story, about this woman that we're going to introduce shortly, is that it doesn't begin with her. It begins with a 12-year-old girl who is sick to the point of death. And I really think that this is an amazing story and says so much without saying a whole lot at all. I mean, the story begins with a ruler of the synagogue, and this ruler, this elder in the synagogue, because the synagogue didn't necessarily have the professional class, um, the, the scholars, they had elders, they had community men that were in the synagogue. And so this is one of the community men in the synagogue, and he is obviously probably well-respected, highly regarded, a very important man with status and prestige in his community, and he has this 12-year-old daughter who is deathly sick. And so this is textbook for sympathy. This is a textbook story for sympathy. It's a good man with a good family and a young daughter who's too young to be experiencing the kind of illness that she's experiencing. And this is a good man with a good family and a young daughter and big faith. This man comes to Jesus. He bows before me. He says, come and lay your hands on her and she will be made well. Good man, good family, good daughter, too young to die. Big faith. Come, Jesus. She will be healed if you come. You've seen these stories before. They played out in your lives millions of times. Good families, good men, good women with big faith, with a precious son or a precious daughter who has all of their life ahead of them. Many of the people are probably there and gathered and recognize Jairus and say to themselves, yes, this is a good man and, and, and Jesus can help this man. Let's go and, and let's follow him as Jesus goes with this man in order to heal this good man's good daughter. That's one story. However, nestled in between that story 
of a 12-year-old female who is suffering from a deathly illness is another story about a suffering female who's been suffering since that baby was born. That child is 12 years old. This woman has been suffering for 12 years. But her story looks a lot different than the story of this child. Great crowds were thronged about him as they were going to see about this good man's good daughter. Nevertheless, in verse 25, we hear this, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood, who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. You see, since this child that Jesus is going to see has been born, this woman has been suffering from this terrible condition. We don't know the source of this continuous discharge and hemorrhaging of her blood, but here's what Scripture gives us. Verse 26, and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. For 12 years, this woman has suffered immensely. For 12 years, this woman has been seeking doctor after doctor and spent dollar after dollar seeking to get better and has not gotten any better. For 12 years, she's experienced pain and financial strain and hurt. And even through all of that, her condition is not only not improving, but her condition is actually getting worse, according to Scripture. She's sick, she's hurting, she's broke. But believe it or not, that is not the worst part of her condition. You see, the worst part of her condition is, in fact, the, the, the social and emotional tax that this condition most certainly has taken on this woman. And to fully understand that, the extent of this woman's social and emotional tax, we have to go all the way back to the New Testament to read about how this woman would be treated. In Leviticus chapter 15, the Bible says this, regarding women just like this woman. Listen very closely. It says when a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. And everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she, sh uh, she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be clean until the evening. And whether it is a bed or anything on which she sh uh, sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening." And if any man lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be unclean. Seven days and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. And if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, of her impurity she shall be uncleanness clean. She shall be unclean. 
for the last 12 years, listen, the last 12 years, everything and everyone this woman has ever touched has been rendered unfit and unclean. She sits down, and the place that she sits for the last 12 years has been rendered unclean. She lies down, and the place that she lies down for the last 12 years has been rendered unclean. She touches an object, and the object has been rendered unclean. She touches a human being, and that human being is rendered unclean. See, this condition is not only painful, this condition is isolating. This condition is alienating. You see, hope for deep friendship is now greatly diminished. Why? Because you can't touch anybody. They're rendered unclean. Hope for romance is greatly diminished, and, and that's still not all. According to Josephus, the Jewish, uh, the Jewish historian, the temple was closed to women during their menstruation. Do you know what that means? That means that this woman was practically banished from the opportunity to participate in worship in the temple. Suffering in her body, suffering in her finances, because she spent all that she had in order to try to, in order to, try to fix what's, what's wrong with her. Suffering in her social status because she's been ostracized, because she is rendered unclean for the last 12 years of her life. Suffering in her emotions, obviously, because how can you not suffer in your emotions when everybody sees you as dirty? And suffering even in her worship, the place that we would go to find relief for the finances and relief for the emotion and uh, the emotional struggles and relief for the body and relief for the social ostracizing. And yet, even in that, the struggle is real present. This condition not only carried power to leave someone in physical and financial ruin, but this condition carried the power to leave someone in emotional and social ruin. Can you imagine the level of shame that this woman has carried as she has carried this condition? In what way? In what way, sisters, or even brothers for that matter, in what way do you identify with this woman this morning? The physical suffering? The financial ruin? The social ostracizing or the social isolation? The abandonment? The lack of friendship? The lack of romantic relationship? Or the feeling of distance from God? How do you respond in a shape like this? Where do you turn? Where does this leave you if this is your condition? Hopefully the same place that this leaves this woman, desperate. Which leads to the second point. Out of the profile of this woman, we see her reason for desperation. March uh, 5, 27, uh, chapter 5, verse 27, it says, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. And she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. This woman in touching Jesus has so much on the line. She isn't supposed, remember, she isn't supposed to be touching anyone. 
And here she is risking touching the man that everybody is following and everybody is going to going with to, to see what he's going to do with, with, with this young daughter where he has this good man and this good daughter and this good family and she's too young to die and here he is and all the people are going along with him. And here is this unclean woman risking it all to touch him. She's risking it because she is desperate. She's wholly desperate. She has no money to depend on, right? She spent all of it on the doctors. She has no social status to depend on. She's ostracized. She's rejected. She's an outcast. She has no physical strength to depend on. She's weak and frail, obviously, battered and bruised, so to speak, from, from the physical condition. No romantic relationships or friendships necessarily to depend on. No religious status to depend on. She's not high in the synagogue or she doesn't have any respectability in the place. In fact, she's ostracized from that place as well. The temples, she's on the outside. But she's heard about a man. Name Jesus. <laughs> now, sometimes the only time we'll reach out to God is when we have nowhere else to reach. This woman has nowhere else to reach. So she hears about a man named Jesus. And she says, if I could just touch him, just touch his garment. I'll be well. As the procession was moving towards the house, the daughter of uh, the, the ruler of the synagogue's house for the sake of his daughter with all kinds of anticipation in the air, this woman was simply hoping she could sneak up to Jesus, reach out, and just touch his garment in such a way where nobody notices. And more than likely, she probably figured, hey, there's a massive crowd rushing to the ruler of the synagogue's house to see about his poor daughter. So no one will notice if I slip in and just graze his garment. In fact, no one has noticed me ever, really. Nobody's paid attention to me. I've been on the outside for the last 12 years. So why would they notice now? in the midst of these crowds. And family, here's the thing, she was absolutely right. No one did notice her but Jesus. You know, many of you know that Candy and I had the opportunity to travel to New York City uh, this past December for a couple's vacation, just a, time, a little time away. Um, you guys, blessed us uh, with, with, with some vacation financing and said, hey, why don't y'all take a couple of days and go just hang out and just relax? And we were like, man, they just gave us a little money, and if we take our money and combine it with the church's money, we might be able to take a real big trip. So we put some money together and we went to New York. It was like, we've never been. We said, hey, here's the shot, right? We went to New York. And it was a beautiful time. We did a lot of neat things together. We ate a lot of great food together. It was the time, we had the time of our lives there. 
But one of the most memorable moments was the day-long tour that we had while we were in New York, where we took a tour around the city and, and we saw all sorts of great sights, and it included a ferry ride from Manhattan across the Hudson, uh, from Manhattan across the Hudson River to Jersey City and then back. Now, if you know anything about New York, then you know that it is a very, very congested place. But the location of the ferry seemed to be even more congested than the city itself. And so there's crowds, there's New York crowds, and then there is this ferry hub crowds. And it is extremely crowded, flooded with people. People are everywhere. But not only is it crowded, our tour guide gave us very specific instructions for this uh, particular trip. He said, okay, listen, guys, this trip is time. You have to get to this ferry on time because if you do not get to this ferry on time, you cannot wait for the other ferry. The tour bus will leave you. So you have to, when we get off the tour bus, you have to proceed expeditiously to the ferry. And then when the ferry stops, you have to get off the ferry and proceed expeditiously back to the tour bus because if you don't get back to the tour bus, they will leave you. So when the tour bus stopped, the door, bu- the door is open, everybody broke out. Shot out like we were shot out of a cannon, right? And we're fast-paced walking, you know, because that's what, that's what people over 40 do. You know, we don't run. We just walk fast, right? So, so we're fast-paced walking through all the crowded hallways towards the ferry. And you know what we experienced do- during that walk? Lots of brushes against us. We were walking, you know, trying to get to a place because we got to get there fast, right? We don't want to be left. And so people are brushing against Candy, people are brushing against me, lots of unintentional brushes, you know, as we go. There was a more direct bump that, was, that warranted an excuse me. But other than that, you know, you're just brushing against people because it's crowded and everybody's moving fast to, to get where they're trying to go. But during that process, there was never anything that disrupted us enough for us to stop. We were getting brushes everywhere. People were touching us. It was crowded, but we never thought we gotta stop. You know why? Because where we were trying to get to was important and urgent. Are you tracking with me? Here's a similar situation happening here with this woman. Everybody's walking. We got to get there, Jesus. This girl is about to die. We got to hurry up. And people are thronged around Jesus, and they're walking, and people are brushing and brushing and brushing. And nobody's thinking to stop. Why? Because we got somewhere important to go. And so we're all walking, 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 and then we stop. Jesus, man, what are you doing? We got places to go. Come on, let's go, let's go. But the moment was too important for Jesus to keep going. So important, listen, folks, so important, that girl died. Jesus said she was just sleeping. In other words, I got time for her. But I need to see about this woman who just touched me. Verse 30, he says, Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched 
my garments. His disciples said to him, Jesus, this is New York. We're in a ferry hallway. There's people touching you everywhere. They're brushing you all over the place. Everybody's trying to hurry up and get to this girl, man. We got to heal this good man, good, this good family, good daughter. We got to get this girl healed, Jesus. Anybody could have touched you. What are you talking about? Everybody's touching you. And yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. Sisters. Brothers, even. Every single one of us that reach out for the Lord in desperation can rest assured that the Lord individually knows your touch. Some of you are withholding your prayers because in your mind you think Jesus is too busy to acknowledge you. In your heart you you think he's too distracted with more important people's issues to be bothered with hearing your cries. But he knows every single one of our touches. He knows you at a personal level. He knows you at an individual level. He sees you. He feels you. You know, in 1 Peter, we're told to put all of our worries. 1 Peter chapter 5, cast your anxiety, all your anxieties, all your cares, all your worries, all your concerns, all your fears, all your regards, cast them all on Jesus because he cares for you, you, you at an individual level, he knows you. And therefore, you can give him everything. You can lay it all down because he knows you. Peter is saying, and then he says in verse 8 of that same chapter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 is what I just read. This is what he says in verse 8. Listen, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So here's what Peter's saying. Peter is saying this. Here is a church in 1 Peter that is, that is scattered and that are suffering. They are facing persecution of all shapes and sizes. And so Peter tells them, give your cares to God because God cares for you. And then he says this, be sober-minded and watchful, not overwhelming your emotions when you're faced with difficulty and hardship. Why? Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour, in particular, seeking a doubter to devour. Here's what Peter is saying. He's saying when you are struggling and wondering whether or not God sees you, whether or not God hears you, whether or not God feels you, whether or not God actually cares for you, the devil is lurking and looking for an opportunity to whisper in your ears, you're right, he probably doesn't. You're right, maybe he is too busy. 
You're right, maybe he's not powerful enough. You're right, maybe he's not good enough. You're right, maybe he doesn't care for you. But he does. And we know it based on what we're reading in Mark 5. This unseen woman of low reputation, ignored on the outside, on the outskirts. People don't even want to touch her because of what that means for them. And yet Jesus says, I can't go any farther until I stop and have a conversation with her. You see, Jesus could have allowed the healing to go forth and just kept moving, right? They got places to go. So he could allow her to touch, it, touch his garment. In fact, what happens? The conversation doesn't heal her. She touches the garment. She's healed. And her plan is to receive the healing and slip back out. But Jesus doesn't just want the miracle. He wants the relationship. And so he turns back to this woman looking for an encounter and not just a miracle. He pauses from his urgent matters because he's looking for an encounter. He's looking for a relationship, not just a miracle. One scholar highlights that one of the things that separates Jesus in this moment from any other superstar is that any other superstar will be concerned with the, with the event that has the most buzz, the event that has the most hype, the event that has the most, uh, the most uh, mystique around it. So that's Jairus' daughter, you know, the ruler of the synagogue, the good man, the good family, the young daughter. And, and so Jesus, in, in most cases, he would have been trying to get to the big event, but he's stopping to talk to the woman who doesn't matter to anybody. That's what separates him from others. He's not like us. He's not looking for the story that resonates with us that we feel like will have the most buzz. He cares, he cares just as much about that story as he does any other story. In fact, he cares just as much about you as he does any other woman, as he does any other man. I'm always wondering, you know, in this moment, what did Jesus really know? He looks around and he says, who touched me, right? And there's some sense in which you have the divine and the, and the, and the humanity of Jesus. And, and scholars talk about that, right, in terms of what, what he knows and what he doesn't know in this sense. And so he looks around and he says, who touches me? Who touched me? But I, I can only be reminded of when God was in the garden of Eden and Adam and Eve in their sin were hiding in shame, in fear. And God was saying, where are you, Adam? Not because he didn't know, but because he was trying to pull Adam out of his shame. Come to me, Adam. Not, where, not simply where are you, Adam, but come to me, Adam. Here's this woman who's trying to retreat back, and, and Jesus is pulling her in. Where is that woman? I need to speak with her. Releasing her from that shame, that isolation, that guilt, that lack of engagement, that lack of interaction with anybody. Verse 33 says, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole 
truth. She knew what she knew what was at stake. And so immediately when he began to look for her, she thought that he was going to respond the same way everybody else has responded to her. You notice? The shame is present, the fear is present, the embarrassment is present. She received her healing, but she didn't think she deserved it. She didn't think she was supposed to get it. And now she has to face him. She's like, oh, my goodness, I'm in trouble for this. So she understands the weight of what she has done. In fact, this woman realizes that for the last 12 years, when she touches someone, they are rendered unclean. When she touches someone, they have to isolate. When she touches someone, they have to alienate. But what she does not realize is that the one she has touched does not become unclean when she touches him. She becomes clean when she touches him. He's not bothered. <laughs> in fact, in verse, 20, uh, verse 34, he says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. That's his response. His response is to heal, but not simply to heal, to cleanse. To cleanse. To bring you back, out from the outside, inside. To bring you into fellowship with him. Some of you read this and you say to yourself, man, listen, that's great for this woman, right? It's great that she got healed, but my goodness, my bills are still present and my healing still has not come and my suffering is still real and my, my social isolation is still real. My rejection is still real. So what do I do with that? I want to encourage you from the same place that I encouraged you earlier, 1 Peter chapter 5. Would you turn there as we close? Because I want you to see this. 1 Peter chapter 5. Verse 7 of that text. Reading from the CSB, it says, Casting all your care on him because he cares about you. Be serious, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Remember what we said? Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you, but then the enemy is there to say what? No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Because if he cared for you, you wouldn't still be broke. 
No, he doesn't. Because if he cared for you, your marriage wouldn't be in shambles. No, he doesn't. Because if he cared for you, you, still, you wouldn't be sick. No, he doesn't. Because if he cared for you, you wouldn't be ostracized and isolated and only outside. So no, he does not care for you. That's the roaring lie. Does that make sense? The isolation that, that these folks feel in 1 Peter chapter 5, the feeling of abandonment, like God has abandoned them and left them, the devil is there to say, yes, he has. That's the roaring line, seeking whom he may devour, stripping us of our faith. And so, verse 9 is the answer. Verse 9 says what? Resist him and be firm in the faith knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Now the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus will personally restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. The dominion belongs to him forever. Amen. So what is our answer? Our answer in the face of the suffering, in the face of the despair, in the face of the ostracizing and the isolation is to resist the devil when he says that God is not there. Resist the devil when he says he does not care for you. And remind him that the God of all grace has called me, along with all the saints of the world, has called me into his eternal glory, meaning that all of this will one day end. That there is an eternal joy that awaits me, that there is an eternal end to my suffering that awaits me, that there is an eternal peace that awaits me. And that this God, he will personally restore me, he will personally establish me, he will personally strengthen me, and he will personally support me after I have suffered a little while. Yes, I may suffer in this life, but this God will with his own hands personally restore, establish, strengthen, and support. And that's how I resist him when he whispers in my ears that my God does not care. And this is how you resist him, when he whispers in your ears that your God does not care. He does. He does, saints. He does. Let's pray. God, we love you so much, and we give you all the thanks and praise.